Radio, 97.5 and 1240 KFH. Hey, Shocker fans, want the latest on Wichita State Athletics? Let's go right to the source with Shocker AD Kevin Saul. And welcome back, everybody. It's been a while since we've had the opportunity to talk to Kevin Saul. Jacob Albrock, Tommy Caster here on a Wednesday edition of Sports Daily. Uh, Kevin, we've got a lot going on in the world of Shocker Athletics. Softball underway. Baseball gets underway this week. But we'll start with basketball, and we'll just sort of come out swinging here. I remember the first time we met, Kevin. Um, I, we we talked, and, and I love that you're available, and I appreciate that more than you know, and I think Shocker fans do too. I said this will work great as long as when the questions get uncomfortable, we're able to still keep having these conversations. I suspect yeah. that they're getting a little more uncomfortable in your world. I know they are in our world. The Shockers get a double overtime win against SMU, but it's hard to say things have gone well lately. Uh, for the Shockers, and I know fans are frustrated. What is it like right now for you on the inside when it comes to Shocker men's basketball? Are you feeling that discomfort among fans, or or what's the vibe you're getting around the program right now? Well, uh, first off, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Jacob and Tommy, just uh, thank you for that. And if I can address the the level of discomfort, I I think uh, I'm a firm believer, maybe I'm in the minority, that uh, when when you when you get comfortable being uncomfortable, that's when organizations have an opportunity to really change and adapt and improve. So I embrace uh, discomfort. And uh, I think that's where you you have an opportunity to really grow and improve. So um, that piece is really important. Um, Certainly whatever you want to call it, whether it's um, tension, discomfort, recognition, um, uh, discouragement, um, there, there are certain elements of our fan base that, that speak in different ways about all of our programs. So specifically, uh, you know, regarding men's basketball, we've, we've talked a lot about that and the lens through which we evaluate um, at the end of a season is, are, are we getting better? Are we implementing the things that we've talked about preseason and what's the progress for that? And, you know, are we aligning our, Um, results with um, investments, right? With the investments that we're making, are we aligning those expectations to the resources and ultimately productivity? So there's a lot of layers that go into that from technical skills and ability development to how are we developing the young people in our programs from a whole person perspective, the academics element, the recruiting compliance, um, academic performance, uh, there's so much that goes into the evaluation of any one given program, and we spend a lot of time talking about that throughout the year, preseason, postseason. Uh, so, yes, I think it's also important to recognize that um, we work and live in an industry that's built around passion and and emotion, right? So um, because we have, we serve such a wide variety and diverse set of constituents and fan bases and season ticket holders and everybody approaches it from a unique angle everybody has a unique story and experience with um with shocker athletics that's what makes the collective group a really awesome family and so everyone has a different set of priorities as well 
And so I think what, what we have to be very good at in athletics is listening um, and understanding that passion and emotion certainly beats apathy. Uh, when you're not hearing anything at all, that's where you're in dangerous territory. And um, so, again, I think it all goes into the evaluation and, um, and folks having a level of trust that, that we are pushing things forward every single day and that our desire is to develop young people um, to exude our core values and competitively to position ourselves in a, in a regular, consistent, reliable spot to be competing for championships and, and representing this institution in the NCAA tournament. Oh, Kevin, you took the words out of my mouth. I've always believed that, you know, the most dangerous thing is apathy. Like it's, it's, it's fine, you know, for a fan base to be angry and, and all of that frustrated, whatever the words are, because it shows they care. But when apathy sets in, uh, that's when it gets really dangerous. So in your role overseeing, you know, not only basketball, but just all the programs in general at Wichita State, how, what's the best way from your perspective to combat uh, apathy, if that's growing, if that's something that is, um, you know, kind of coming to the surface, bubbling up, how do you try to combat that in the best way possible? I think anything you can do to mitigate uh, isolation, because apathy and isolation is very dangerous. So we have to maintain connections. We have to seek out opportunities to have conversations, to create safe spaces for our fan base, our season ticket holders, our donors, um, local, regional, national, wherever they may be, to, to have a voice and, and an opinion in, in where we are, where we're going, um, all of those things is really important to create a, an atmosphere of transparency and receptiveness, right? Being receptive to that. One thing to say it, it's another thing to do it over and over and over again. we got to be receptive to that. Um, we have to maintain coachable spirits, right? Nobody's above um, these conversations. They impact all of us. I think what's important is that from myself to everybody within our organization, yes, we have specific roles as a compliance administrator or a senior women's administrator or a director of athletics or in facility and operations, and all of those pieces contribute to a successful organization. We're also all fans here. Um, we wouldn't be doing what we do if we weren't fans of the enterprise of intercollegiate athletics, if we weren't fans of our student athletes and our coaches and want the absolute best for them as well as a collective whole. And so I think it's important for our fan base to understand that we're not a disconnected group of administrators. We, we are shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm with our fans. We want all that success as well. And so do our coaches. Um, it's really about how do we come together and, and achieve that together in some unique ways. So I, I think that's maybe some important perspective for folks to hear. I, I and, and I know what the number one question for fans is. Kevin Saul speaking to us now, Wichita State's athletic director. It's how is the evaluation of Isaac Brown going as the head coach of this basketball program? It's a, it's a hard conversation, I think, for fans too, because I, I think everybody – likes Isaac Brown. He is as stand up and good a person as uh, at least on the surface as we have, but the reality is the team I don't think is winning enough games. Um and you know, it's been since early January since they've won a couple in a row. I uh, go back to early December since they've won a couple in a row before that and that's it. Two two game winning streaks this year. How are you evaluating the team on the court? 
How are you evaluating the team off the court, and how are you evaluating at this point on February 15th the job Isaac Brown is doing as the head coach of that program? That's good, Jacob. I think that's a six-part question if I if I got that it part is. right. It so is. If I address those <laughs> in the order presented. I, first and foremost, um, Isaac Brown's character and integrity is unquestioned. Um, that, that's that He's got a great heart for our program and our the young men in our program, and and wants the absolute best. So, so that, that piece is very important. I think that's a, a critical element for all of our head coaches. Um, the, the evaluation of programs is ongoing. It's every day, right? There are opportunities to perform, to succeed, to fail every single day, whether that's in recruiting, whether that's in on the field or court performance, we are constantly being evaluated. And that's what I, I think is, is, also great about our enterprise. We're, we're constantly being evaluated, and our work uh, is being evaluated by many, many others uh, because it is so visible. So, you know, I think um, to answer the question, uh, how will that evaluation go out or what are the detailed components of that, we look at everything, guys, uh, absolutely every aspect of the program. Are we getting better competitively? Are we are individual players improving uh, in, in their technical skills and abilities, in their whole person development, and all of those components. We could spend um, you know, 20 or 30 minutes on just this subject alone on, player, uh, on, on program evaluation. Uh, at the end of the day, it will be comprehensive. Um, it will be detailed and thorough. And we, unless uh, under significant extenuating circumstances of which I've, I've less than a handful of times in my 23 year career, those evaluations conclude at the end of the season. Um, so that's, that's the fair and right thing to do. And, and we'll continue to work our way forward. I think uh, sometimes folks um, might misconstrue silence or quietly working and doing the things that we do day in and day out as um, a lack of attention towards a particular subject matter. And that's not necessarily the case either. Um, we, we, we have a lot of things going in athletics that a lot of details. We're going to be successful. It's going to be about an elite attention to detail in every single area. But we're not out publicly talking about every single minute and granular detail that we're working on in athletics. Um, that doesn't mean it's not going on. Um, so I think that's an important piece for, for folks to understand as well. Kevin, from a 30,000-foot view here, uh, and in the world of college athletics in general, um, the, the announcement came down last week that Texas and OU will be leaving the Big 12 a year earlier than originally scheduled. We know uh, the, the, the schools currently in the American that are leaving for the Big 12, and then speculation that the Pac-12 is maybe looking at SMU. Um, as it relates to basketball men's basketball is that has kind of been well not kind of been it has been the banner carrier for wichita state athletics for a long time from a thirty thousand foot view i know you don't have a crystal ball and can't predict what's going to happen in the world of conference realignment as it relates to wichita state and the american and all of that long term how important is it from your perspective to have a high quality men's basketball program as there is uh, these conversations going on nationally about other conferences looking at poaching schools from the American? Well, to answer the first question, it's critically important that we have a highly successful 
uh, men's basketball program for many reasons. Um, uh, from a, a university uh, life, student life, very, very important. From a community engagement piece, very important. Obviously, this program means a great deal to our community and everyone in it. Um, it's, a, it's a source of great pride uh, for individuals. Uh, it is the economic engine that fuels our department. Uh, it fuels uh, a majority of, if not all, um, our scholarship payments to the university for our 250 student athletes. I think we have uh, right around 120 full scholarships for 250 uh, athletes. Of course, some of those guys are, are chopped up in percentages and, and those sort of things. So it's critically important uh, from a, from a uh, cultural piece, from a uh, morale component, community engagement, campus life, uh, very, very important. Um, and I, I think folks understand that. And, and in some ways, um, I think maybe that can create a misperception that other programs aren't important, and that's not it. When you look through the, the lens of importance, all 15 of our programs are incredibly important. We want to align resources, expectations, and all 15 programs to win championships, guys. We've set a strategic objective to win 15 AAC championships in the next five years. We're going to need to be really good in a lot of sports to accomplish that. So that piece is really important. When you look through the financial lens, the reality is is that we have um, two or three programs that have the ability to uh, drive some of the finance and resources that that all of our programs will ultimately benefit from. And so there's two different lenses to look at there, but again, critically important uh, there. As it relates to, to conference realignment, uh, the, the best strategy that I know to do is have as many conversations as you can with your conference leadership, uh, with peers in the industry, in different uh, leagues, having the opportunity to build a, a pretty robust network over 23 years and, and knowing athletic directors in the Pac-12 or athletic directors in the American Athletic Conference or the Southeastern Conference and, hey, what are you hearing and what does this look like? And um, so that you can understand uh, the climate that, that we're in. Obviously, we all know that, that UCF, Cincinnati, and Houston will be departing the league uh, July 1 of 23. Uh, we've got the six, what I'll call is, is uh, majority Western footprint of Conference USA coming into the league. We've got a Florida Atlantic that I believe is still in the top 25 in the polls, and last I looked was 33 in the net. We've got a North Texas uh, team that is doing a phenomenal job and has had great success over the last three or four years. We have a capable Charlotte team coming in, a UAB team that's had some success. So I think there's going to be strength in the league. It certainly will have to build. There, there wouldn't be any outright number one in the net type programs uh, coming in, but at the same time, very capable programs that, that are committed to basketball success. And that's the important piece is to align our program. Um, in an environment that, that pushes us, that drives us to improve and succeed and enhance resource development. Um, those pieces are critically important. I still think it can be a multi-bid league. And if you look at the data, uh, some folks want to compare where the American will be versus where the Missouri, the Missouri Valley Conference is or will be. And if you look at the, the data, I think we have three or four teams in the top 100 in the net right now. If you add the, uh, the new members next year, there's more. 
And I think in the Missouri Valley, there might be one team in the top 100 in the net. So I still think we're in a very competitive environment. I think financially it benefits us as well. Um, Exposure-wise, it's really good. I know some folks are concerned about the 3 o'clock tip on a Super Bowl Sunday that the, the league schedules that, obviously, and TV picks that up. Great exposure for Wichita State to be on primary ESPN from 3 to 5.15 right before the Super Bowl. Uh, the ratings on yeah, that are, in- are going very high, so... Yeah, that was that was an interesting slot, but you know it's double edged sword. Kevin Saul, Wichita State uh, athletic director. I'll ask you this question: You may not be able to answer this, you probably can't, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Do you think that Wichita State is in the best position to be a member of the American five years down the road? None of us know when all of this is gonna settle or who comes out on top. Have you been satisfied with the level of aggression with the American though, and and do you see it as the best place? By the way, the American's better than the Valley. We can put that to rest right now. Um, but is the American going to be in the position it needs to be for Wichita State to be in the position it needs to be, let's say, five years from now? Well, Jacob, interesting question, right? Because we're, we, we're, we're in a fluid environment now, right? You, you did a great job of, of summarizing the Texas and Oklahoma movement and the, the Pac-12s movement. Those are all things that you are hearing about, and there's double that that you're not hearing about and conversations that are being had. So um, I, I would love to meet the individual that can definitively say on, on February 15th, 2023, that five years from now, the American Athletics Conference will absolutely be the absolute best. You know, you just can't, you can't get there at the end of the day. Uh, that's a that's an hour by hour and day by day discussion. I know that we were in absolutely the right best fit for Wichita State University. The American Athletic Conference has been great to us over the last handful of years. Uh, we've won six AAC championships, so we clearly have the ability to be competitive in the league. And um, it's been a great home for us. It continues to be a great home from us for us. That being said, uh, we would be short sighted if if. We're not looking out for the best interests of Wichita State Athletics in every aspect of our program, not just conference membership, but in finance and resource allocation and stewardship of our dollars within the program and student-athlete development. It's a fluid and constantly changing environment. We appreciate the answers to uh, some of the questions that are uncomfortable. Kevin, let's talk about some exciting questions here and some exciting things before we let you go. Softball is underway Boy, we'd like to see him 5-0, and but 4-1 and is not too bad. A few errors out there on that first road trip cost him in the loss, but a good start for that crew. They stay on the road. I wonder how excited you are to get them back home for the first time, um, which will be March 4th, but things are off to a good start. I think the buzz, I mean, I, I think that the buzz is pretty high right now, as high as it can be in February, and it'll probably be great by the time we get to March 4th. There's no doubt. There's great excitement. Um, just a little bit of personal background. I had two sisters that played softball. One was heavy into traveling. So we were a softball family. Dad coached, really loved the game, uh, very close relationships within the softball community. Um, it's a great sport, and uh, there's a lot of fan interest in that. We've had some success, so I think four regionals in the last six years. So folks are, are very excited. We've got a home schedule that was uh, 11 home games last year. We'll be at 26 this year so we're incredibly excited about that the investment the the recent and short-term investments we made in the program the long-term investments we have out there there's no doubt there's great excitement for our softball program good first weekend as you mentioned jacob uh, four consecutive wins a lot of runs being scored 
went up against a, a really good picture, uh, pitcher uh, at Texas State. Um, I think when the dust settles on this season, you're going to see Texas State's uh, either one or two in the Sun Belt. Uh, good quality program for us to play early on. So, again, I, I love Coach Bredbender's approach to scheduling uh, tough because I think the lessons you learn early on scheduling tough pay real dividends for you when you're competing for a league championship in the regular season at Central Florida. Um, so, again, another tough weekend ahead. you got San Diego State. Um, you got Boise State, you got San Diego, so uh, plenty of challenge ahead and, and certainly looking forward to getting them home. And then before we let you go, uh, real quick on baseball, which starts on Friday on the road, how have things gone now as Eric Wedge's tenure is done and this team's had to transition through that? Have you had a chance to see them at practice or anything, or, or what's, a, you know, what's a baseline expectation, do you think, for fans as we get ready to start watching the baseball team for the first time this week? Yeah, I think we've got an unbelievable staff, and Lauren Hibbs and, and Mike Pelfrey, Mike Sirianni, Nate Briscoe, Connor Barons have done a really remarkable job in some challenging circumstances. I think our student-athletes have embraced the change uh, in a very, very positive and receptive and excited way. Um, so I think we're we're in a, a good spot uh, with that. I've had an opportunity to be around the staff and the team a little bit. I'm I'm actually going to leave tomorrow to fly out to uh, to L.A. and I'll be with them for three consecutive days at Long Beach State. Um, so those games, local times, are eight o'clock Friday, eight o'clock Saturday, and three o'clock Sunday. So I have an opportunity to spend uh, a handful of days with our guys out there, and I think that's really important as we evaluate. Again, we get into program evaluation. We evaluate every aspect of our baseball program and how we travel and develop, manage success and failure, and, and all those pieces. It's a long journey. Uh, we got 56 games. Uh, it starts Friday, and, and regular season finishes up on May 20th. So we got a long season ahead of us, and I think fans should be very excited. I, I, I'm very hopeful, as our staff is, that we're in a position we'll score a lot of runs. Um, our ultimate success will be consistency offensively and then um, – I'm really going out on a limb here, guys. Consistent offensive and, and then some predictable uh, uh, pitching. Uh, so right. I think there's always question marks on your pitching staff and roles and those things develop throughout the season. But it's an exciting group. And I think most importantly, our student-athletes are in a really good place. And uh, they are very much looking forward to uh, the opportunity to compete. Kevin, we're looking forward to our next conversation. We appreciate these, uh, and we appreciate uh, you taking the time to answer the questions even when – they may not be ones that are fun to answer. Uh, let's get into the spring season successfully and finish out the winter season strong. We'll do it again soon. All right, guys. I really appreciate the time, and they're all fun for me to answer. It's a, this is a good place. It's a blessing to be here, and we have unbelievable opportunities to develop people. So thanks for the opportunity to tell the story and go Shockers. There goes Kevin Saul, Wichita State Athletic Director, joining us. We appreciate that. If you missed any of that conversation, kfhradio.com. We'll come back. It's parade day for the Kansas City Chiefs, but we want to talk about what's next, right? That Super Bowl's in the rearview mirror now. What about next year? That's, that's how quickly we turn the page. We'll do it next on Sports Daily.
BetMGM, an official sports betting partner of the Kansas City Chiefs, congratulates Chiefs Kingdom on their big game victory. And with the best parlay selections tools, boosted odds specials, and daily promotions, BetMGM knows what it's like to be a champion. No matter how you like to bet, the BetMGM app has all the action you need, whether you're betting from home, on the go, or attending a game. Plus, every time you make a wager at BetMGM, you'll learn BetMGM rewards points that you can redeem for online bonuses or dining, shows in hotel rooms at over 20 MGM Resorts properties located on the Las Vegas Strip and nationwide. If you love sports and want to take the excitement of the action to the next level, then it's time to get on board at the King of Sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager Kansas only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and hotel. Welcome back into Sports Daily, everybody. Jacob Albrock, Tommy Castor with you here on this Wednesday. If you missed anything with our conversations with Brian Haney, the voice of the Kansas Jayhawks in hour number one, or with Wichita State's Athletic Director Kevin Saul here to start off hour number two, you can find them all at kfhradio.com. Tommy, uh, the Chiefs, you know, the football betting is done as far as last season. Now we look to the draft, maybe for some chances or futures. The Chiefs are the favorites. I think the Chiefs are clearly the favorites next season. Um, Some of the teams that are on the come now have to pay quarterbacks, right? They'll have to solve the challenges that the Chiefs have spent the last two years solving. In one offseason, they rebuilt the offensive line. And in the other, they rebuilt the defense. I don't think the rebuild is completely finished in either of those areas. And it's interesting that the two biggest question marks of the offseason are prominent figures of those areas, Tommy. They got a decision to make with Orlando Brown Jr., and they got a decision to make with Frank Clark. I wouldn't be surprised at all if neither one of those guys are Kansas City Chiefs next year. Is that the right decision? I don't know. I I think that, you know, both of those guys, based on overall production, in my opinion, were probably, and, and I got into this discussion in the office uh, with Matt Henderson, our, our sports director now and producer forever for, for 12 News, were they overpays? And I still maintain they were overpays, but and his contention was no, they're not because they won Super Bowls. And I will agree with that, but I think something can be an overpay and worth the overpay, right? Like, I still think they were overpays based on what we've seen from those guys on the field, all the draft capital and the money and everything else. But it was worth it, right, because they won the Super Bowls. They'd do it 10 times out of 10. That doesn't mean they returned their true value, though, what they got back. And and I only bring this up because now decisions have to be made on both of those guys. Do you keep running them out there or do you make changes there? And those are the two biggest questions for the Chiefs this offseason. Well, where I disagree with you on is I think both of them will be Kansas City Chiefs next year. I don't think they're going to get rid of either one of them. Um, for Orlando Brown speculation is that they're going to franchise tag him again. Uh, Pro Football Talk Mike Florio is reporting that, that the Chiefs are not really interested in letting him hit the open market. So it looks like for a second time, and we can talk Uh. about whether or not that's the right decision, but right now, uh, according to Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk, the Chiefs are, are interested in franchise tagging Orlando Brown Jr. for the second time. And then with Frank Clark, He's technically under contract because he restructured his deal before last season. And where it's positive for Frank Clark and for the Chiefs is that the cap hit 
is is not that bad. It's not as bad as it was before they restructured right. the contract. So we're talking about a, a cap hit of what, like just under $7 million, which before it would have been absolutely ridiculous uh, to the point to where Kansas City, without a restructure, there's no way they would have kept him uh, on the roster. So I think it's, it's, it's probably uh, fair to say that both of them will remain Kansas City Chiefs next season. Yeah, the base salary, though, is still $20 million. So, you know, it's a $27 million deal, the cap number, on Frank Clark's contract, I believe. But why do you restructure it for a two-year deal if you're not intending on keeping him for the second year of the two-year deal? Like, why don't you just restructure it with a better cap hit for that one year, the year we just wrapped up, and then let him go? I won't pretend to know the answer to that question because I'm not 100% sure. I don't think you can do that that short term, though. Um, I mean, the base salary is really high, right? The base salary is like 13% of, if, if I if I understand it correctly, of what their salary cap will be. So it's a question of, at 30 years old, if the Chiefs can get everything else they need to get solved with it, Will Frank Clark be a $27, $30 million a year player this year? No, I don't think he will be. I don't think he ever has been. And so that that gets into the overpay but be willing to do it conversation. And I think it fits both of these guys, honestly, because Orlando Brown, to me, on a on a, on a, a, a one-year deal, right, if they franchise tag him, that's an overpay because he's not one of the top left tackles in football, which is what he'll be paid like for one year. Are you yeah. willing, though, to overpay it because you can? And that's where the Chiefs are in this interesting place, right? This, and, and, and they've been here for a little while. I don't think anybody would tell you that Orlando Brown is is a top left tackle in this league, but he's going to get paid by like one this year if they if they tag him. And Frank Clark, to me, has never been worth the money in that contract. If you're just looking at production to dollars— but both of those guys obviously have tremendous value to this team because they fill those needs. And so it becomes a really interesting strategy then for Brett Veach to evaluate that and decide when to make the change or when to try to stretch it out because they can, because they have the room to do it. Chris Jones has got to get paid too, right? And that and that to me has to be the priority. If, if it costs you Frank Clark and Orlando... Uh, Brown to make sure that Chris Jones is a chief for you know for at least the foreseeable future, if not forever, then that's what you're going to have to do because he's far more important to me than those two guys are. I, I don't know. I I am not. I want to be very clear. I'm not an advocate for keeping Orlando Brown around. Um, I, I don't think he's all that great. I don't think he's all that special. I don't think he's worth 120 percent of his current contract to franchise tag him again. Like I, I just don't see that. I would rather him hit the open market, and I would rather see Brett Veach go and try to find either a, a, a low cost free agent or draft his replacement because he's been really good at that with guys like Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith on the line. That being said, though, I do feel like that if Orlando Brown hadn't have played a good Super Bowl, I'm not sure that the Chiefs would be <laughs> as interested in franchise tagging him for a second time. And he played well same in the with Super Frank Bowl Clark. the entire— It's yeah, the same exactly. with Frank Clark. Exactly. Playoff Frank. Yeah, exactly. And so you're, you're seeing this offensive line, and it was the entire O-line, Paul and I talked about it yesterday, that came to play uh, and not giving up a sack in the Super Bowl on Patrick Mahomes. And it was such in stark contrast to the last Super Bowl against the Buccaneers and the way the offensive line played that I can absolutely see that, you know, Kansas City is saying, well, man, 
I look at the way that Orlando Brown and the rest of the O-line performed. You know, Andrew Wiley is a free agent also. Uh, so it wouldn't, it, or, uh, yeah. Gotta so lock it him shock up. Me. Right, it wouldn't shock me one bit if, you know, we see the Chiefs say, you know what, let's go ahead and try to, you know, bring back as many pieces of this offensive line as possible. It, it I, I have to simplify salary cap things because I feel like it takes a master's degree to know it and understand it and truly get a grasp of it. So let me make it perfectly clear to everyone that when I look at this stuff, I simplify it. I do not understand it very well. I understand it in basic terms, though. And in basic terms, it's far more important to me that the Chiefs have Andrew Wiley than Orlando Brown Jr. It's far more important to me that the Chiefs have Chris Jones rather than Frank Clark. So they've done a good job, the Chiefs have, at navigating these things. Tyreek Hill and, and Tyron Matthew... I think we forget about Tyron Matthew, but the Chiefs made hard decisions with those guys, right? And they let them go, and they drafted replacements, right? They they brought in replacements. So, and, and they made their commitment, obviously, to Patrick Mahomes and to Travis Kelsey. What the the absolute number one priority this offseason, to me, is to get Chris Jones extended, right? He's got one year left on his deal. So you got to get him extended for, I don't know what it is, three, four years. I mean, he's, he's going to be 30, so you can't go... You can't get out of control on that. But that has to be the top priority. If you can do that and find ways to keep those other guys, fine. That's fine with me. Because I don't think this team is going to need a lot of free agent help. Right? They have a ton of draft picks. And they've got a lot of players they just drafted that you assume will get better. Right? If you believe in your player development. So they don't need a lot of free agent help. If they can get Jones extended and still keep Brown and Clark, fine. That's fine with me and and Wiley because, again, I, I think Wiley is more important than Brown based on dollars to production. If they can do those things, go for it. Don't care. But if they can't, if Frank Clark and or Orlando Brown in any way impede a long-term deal for Chris Jones, then I got a problem with it. And I, from, from day one of the Frank Clark trade, I was, I'm telling you, when you talk about an island, I was on an island, Tommy. I did not like the deal because I was afraid it would cost them Chris Jones. Now, it hasn't yet, and Frank Clark has been playoff Frank and helped to two Super Bowls. He hasn't been—he has not lived up in the regular season, you know, statistically, to the contract and the draft capital that they gave up. But they've got a couple Super Bowls, so obviously they're willing to do it. But even now, I ask the same question. Is that in any way inhibit them from a long-term deal with Chris Jones? And if it does, then it then then I got a problem with it. But if they can get Chris Jones locked up and and keep those guys, then fine, I don't care. But you got to keep Chris Jones first and foremost. I'm going to take it a step further and go beyond Orlando Jones and and Frank Clark, Orlando Brown and 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 uh, Frank Clark, and take a look at one of the wide receivers who's an impending free agent. Jeremy Fowler from ESPN is reporting that the Chiefs are interested in bringing back Juju Smith-Schuster. So he had that one-year deal, an incentive-laden one-year deal. But ESPN reporting that the Chiefs are interested in Juju coming back and Juju is interested in staying with the Chiefs. It makes me wonder if we are seeing a situation that's similar to Sammy Watkins in Kansas City where he had offers from other teams. He probably could have went and made more money elsewhere. But there was uh, an interest in playing with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey and all of that. 
and Juju potentially, which I'm I'm kind of surprised because if this ends up happening, that's not really Juju's personality, I don't think. Like, I think he's more like go get that money kind of guy. Uh, but being willing to take less money and, and return, uh, that would be interesting and, and certainly not something that I would be predicting. Uh, well, look, he had 933 yards on 78 catches this year, three touchdowns. I mean, he was not a world beater by any means. Now, if he wants to come back on an affordable deal, okay. That's, I, I mean, at that point, that's fine. But you can't go pay him a bunch of money. He is, he, he's not worth that. Now, again, I don't know, like, what is he, what is he looking for? Right, like, what is he trying to achieve there? Because in the postseason, I thought that you know he he was helpful, especially in the Super Bowl. But again, he had ten catches over three games in the postseason. Tommy, no touchdowns. So I I don't know. It would have to be on a cheap deal because if yeah. not, why 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 would you do that? Right, like I certainly you, you wouldn't lock him down money for... on that. I wouldn't lock him down for multiple years. I mean, it would have to be another cheap one-year deal. That's what they right. did with Sammy Watkins for a long time was and every year fine. was another one-year deal. And, you know, I guess it is what it is at that point. If it's, you know, incentive-laden and all of that, I, I guess I get that better than paying him, you know, a big right. salary. Another number to keep in mind, though, and, and we were talking about offensive line play uh, and free agents and all of that, uh, but a, a, a cap-hit player on the offensive line, Joe Tooney, uh, his cap hit goes from – 8.2 million this year to 22.1 million take the hit this coming year so you take the, you don't restructure the contract to try to make well it i mean if you if yeah yeah if you'll restructure that's fine but you don't you don't let joe tooney go anywhere joe tooney needs to be kansas city chief because the reality is if something happens with wiley if something happens with brown joe tooney's your swiss army knife you you cannot let that guy go anywhere has joe tooney made the pro bowl the last couple of years I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate offensive linemen. I've watched him play. Orlando and Joe Brown good. has made the Pro Bowl the last two seasons. Have you watched the Chiefs? Who's been a better I'm just, offensive I'm lineman? You, I'm just telling you that Orlando Brown, as the blindside guy, has made the Pro Bowl the last two seasons. Yeah, who, I don't think who Joe was? Uh, has. Who, who was the uh, who was the quarterback, the backup quarterback in the Pro Bowl this year? Uh, Tyler Huntley. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock in in that. Um, I'm just telling you. I'm telling you the. I mean, and I'm telling you that right I don't. Now, I'm telling you I don't care. I'm telling you that Joe Tooney's better than Orlando Brown Jr. So like I I do not let Joe Tooney go anywhere because he can play I'd multiple like to positions. Think that Joe Tooney would let you restructure his contract. To he maybe might help keep some of these people around. Yeah, he might because it extends his life there too. But I I think when you're looking at and again you have to compare it to the dollars that they would command on the open market. Somebody is going to pay Orlando Brown if he hits the market. I just don't think that's the right thing to do for the Chiefs. Uh, if they can get him to, you know, to come back or do it. But if it's, it's a top level paid, I, I would rather start the replacement process now, right? And keep Wiley and Tooney as options at left tackle if whoever you draft isn't ready and develop it that way. Because why? They have a really good history recently of developing offensive linemen. So keep that trend going. That's always the best option in the NFL, financially. 869-1240, we'll come back. We'll continue this conversation as we look ahead on the Chiefs on parade day. No time for celebration. The offseason started yesterday, Monday. We're going to continue to talk about that on Sports Daily.
This Wednesday edition of Sports Daily, Jacob Albrockton and Tommy Castor will finish our very brief and sort of book-opening conversation on the Chiefs offseason. Um, we can simplify it even further, Tommy. As things currently stand, and obviously they'll change before the draft gets here, but as they currently stand, where do you want to see the Chiefs attack the draft? They got a lot of picks, uh, more, you know, and a lot of opportunities here. What would be your priority, at least early in the draft? Uh, I think maybe another edge rusher would be, you know, something that would be important for Kansas City. Uh, we saw the emergence of George Karloftis this season. That was a great draft pick for Kansas City. Um, so I think that's one area that I would love to see more depth in. Uh, and then also in the secondary, it's already a young secondary. Uh, and Trip McDuffie has been another high impact player for Kansas City. But I would love to see a little bit more depth and help. Uh, at the secondary position, too. I'm not sure that there's a whole lot that you necessarily need to attack in the draft on the offensive side of the ball, uh, but I would love to see a little bit more depth defensively. Right now, the Chiefs have five picks in the first four rounds. They got one in the first, one in the second, one in the third, and then two in the fourth uh, out of the you know the Miami deal. I, I want to see, I, I think I want to see left tackle. And, and the question becomes, you know, with all the different picks that they have, and they have a bunch this year, do they move up? Do they evaluate any players, you know, like that they that they think are values that they have to go up and attack? But I, I almost, because I, I do think it's a little unsettling when you have number 15, to not have a long-term answer at his blindside protector. Um, and I think that it it's time for the Chiefs, whether they keep Orlando Brown Jr. or not, go like, go get your if, – if he exists in the draft, and again, that's a part of the evaluation process that's a little unpredictable. But if he exists, be aggressive. Go get that left tackle and let's be done with it, right? Because – at worst, you can survive with the pass rush that you had last year if you can get all those guys back. So that buys you another year there. They're always going to need help in the secondary. Almost every team in the league does. But let's stop dancing around it here, and let's go get that left tackle locked up and, and get the blind side done and, and just you know ride that wave at least for a few inexpensive years and see if they can't get that right. That's what they wanted to do when they tried to sign Orlando Brown Jr. to I a know. long-term deal and make him the highest paid left tackle yep. in NFL history, and he didn't sign the deal. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think he thought he could probably get more money elsewhere, and he's been playing on a franchise tag and could very well play on another franchise tag this coming season. But the, the window of opportunity for Kansas City to sign Orlando Brown Jr. to a long-term deal is gone. Like, it's out the window. It's not happening. And so, you know, I'm not opposed to them re-tagging him for one more year, but drafting his eventual successor this season like I don't think that that's a bad play early in the draft so at least they've got that in theory locked up for years to come yeah and and the thing is too and the other strategy on the draft when you're and this is what we like my immediate reaction and I said this on Monday to the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl was every other team now is at such a disadvantage because they're gonna have to start paying these great young quarterbacks and the Chiefs have already had to do that the other way they attack this, Tommy, as you know, some of the roster gets older, is to just pick where they have spots or identify players that they really want and go get them, and and just continue yeah. to go, you know, and build that depth for when you do have to make difficult decisions. They're going to have a very interesting draft. It's in Kansas City after a Super Bowl. It's going to be 
freaking ballistic up there. Yeah. I don't see them needing to really worry about a lot of skill positions on the offensive I don't side of the ball in the draft. I mean, maybe I a either. tight end, a young tight end in the later yeah. rounds, I wouldn't be opposed to. Because uh, Travis well, I mean, look, they the need... greatest of all time, but he's not getting any younger, right? Yeah, so... they need a receiver, but they can get that inexpensively through the free yeah. agent market or later in the draft and just keep throwing darts at that position. They proved to us this year that they're, they're okay there. Uh, all right, we'll come back. We'll wrap it up. We'll tell you what's on tap today here. Sports Daily on a Wednesday.